Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 435, is recorded live January 23rd, 2020. Back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where it did rise just a little bit above freezing today. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have you on. Ah, we're almost one twelfth of the way through the season. You know, we, we only got about another week, and January will be over with. And January, if we get through January, it means it's another month and we're almost into February. <laughs> I think that happens almost every year too. I, I've, I've noticed the trend, but you know, we need to get a nice, you know, 150, 200 cycles. I can personally verify and then I'll be confident in it. I'd like to thank everybody who's joining us this week. The chat room's uh, filling up. Must be, uh, gets, gets dark so early that people are, are ready to go and listen to us ramble on for a while. We have Dave and Derek and Eric and Karen all joining us, some regulars. So let's go ahead and get things going. Let's jump right on into the news. I was a little concerned I wasn't going to have any articles, but uh, kind of picked up a bunch of them. First one is out of Florida. They've got a sunscreen bill that's moving forward in the House. They said with a full Senate ready to take up the issue, the House panel Tuesday approved a bill that would block local governments from regulating over-the-counter drugs and cosmetics. The issue centers the decision by Key West, a ban on certain types of sunscreen because of concerns of two chemicals, oxybenzone and what was it, ox, oxtenate, used in products could damage coral reefs. But House sponsor Spencer Roach from Fort Myers said there's not conclusive evidence that chemicals are damaging coral reefs. I'm very concerned about the coral. You said I am lifelong avid scuba diver. I believe that these things were harming the coral reefs. I would certainly not be bringing this bill. Roach said all sunscreen options need to be remain available for protecting Floridians and tourists from getting skin cancer. Opponents of the preemption bill said the mineral-based sunscreens without all the disruptive chemicals are effective. House Local Federal Veterans and Affairs Subcommittee voted 9-6 to to approve the bill. The full Senate is slated Wednesday to take up the Senate version of the bill sponsored by Senate Appropriations Chairman Rob Bradley. Then we have another one, another article on the same topic, just trying to see. Uh, And it pretty much covers everything. According to peer-reviewed studies, according uh, compiled by excuse me, OPPAGA, which is the Office of Program Policy Analysis and Government Accountability. Uh, They found that the two ingredients we talked about before had negative effect on coral marine life when exposed to concentration levels generally not observed in nature. Department of Commerce has also found sunscreen and other cosmetics have chemicals that can harm marine life. they also found seawater from wastewater effluents, leaching from plastics, and leaching from hull of paints and ships. 
Uh, I would be more, you know, wastewater effluent. And what it contains to me is probably going to be your biggest source. Yeah. And that's why it's hard to get, uh, you know, the true. It's hard to find any facts anymore without every you've, you've got uh, people on a variety of sides with, with opinions and interests and to be able to get the uh, information because sometimes it's exponential, the difference between different contamination sources. We focus on, we focus on one because maybe it seems to be easy to do or it's popular. And then we completely ignore the one that's doing 80 to 70 to 80% of all the polluting. And you see that across all types of pollutions. Uh, So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, group makes icy dive to install fish habitat. Uh, this one's out of Hershey, Nebraska. Through six inches of ice in the water that varies between 38 and 40 degrees, the Platte River scuba divers brave the cold to install fishing habitat at the Hershey Wildlife Management Area southeast of Hershey. Interstate 80 interchange. Goodness, trying to stop all the damn videos on this site. Uh the dive club was formed to give members opportunity for fun and be involved in the community. The opportunity to get a grant to increase fishing habitat. The lake was an incentive to practice winter diving. I think we covered this one, didn't we? No, I don't I haven't seen this one. Or at least okay. I didn't see their pictures before. Yeah, maybe they were talking about coming up. It just it's a, it rings vaguely familiar. Uh, the grant came from the Friends of the Reservoir, a nonprofit foundation that is dedicated to protecting and restoring fishery habitats and reservoir systems nationwide. The grant sponsored by King Enterprises, makers of mossback, artificial fish habitat products. There are actually only we are the we are actually the only members of the Friends of the Reservoir in the state of Nebraska. I'm pretty sure we covered this last week, but this has some additional details. Uh, the project in conjunction with the Nebraska Game and Parks, the grant from Mossback was for $1,000 in grants and parks added another two and fifty. He said the dive is a little bigger than what the club normally does to the ice. Uh, we're okay. That repeats. That repeats. Uh, boy. Uh, Uh, let's see. He said the habitat is big and needs to be constructed under the ice as well. Three sets are installed at the lake. Sack describes what it's like to go under the ice. When you're exhaling, the bubbles are rising the top. They get trapped under the ice. When you're under the ice, you're looking up. You can see light. You can see your bubbles running through a psychedelic lava lamp or something. Two types of diving suits were used to go under the ice. One is known as a dry suit. The other is a wetsuit. The wetsuit is filled with water that heats up i don't know if you call it heats up by the diver's body temperature and the dry suit is warm by the exhaled air from the diver no, no. <laughs> <laughs> what are you what are you <laughs> it's always interesting uh, to get i got, I, got yeah. I think i have to have a drink after reading that okay <laughs> okay uh, we will ignore the wetsuit comment because that's kind of common perception not accurate in my opinion but common perception the dry suit is worn by exhaled air from the diver has there ever been an instance where anybody has that that is a rig 
that I think that would be miserable, wouldn't it? Because you well, you're adding... you're gonna need a little extra weight because you're becoming buoyant if you do. That. <laughs> you would look like the, but then even even if that was the way it would work, could you imagine all that humid air you're breathing into your your dry suit? It would con all that moisture would condense, and you'd you'd start having a condensation. Yeah, you wouldn't be dry. Him. Yeah, you would not be dry. Uh, I have stayed under for up to thirty minutes before I get cold. Stansberry said. Uh, Bob Hotchstein went in, in the, with a wetsuit in the second hole that was cut for the occasion. What is there like a wetsuit dry suit hole? Is there discrimination going on here? Or is the hole just for the diving in the ice? Uh, well, I think I had two different opportunities for two different groups to go in. But uh, I was curious that um, the picture is what I like. You got the picture? Uh-huh. Uh, uh and they're saying this is a bigger hole than normal. That's not a real big hole, especially that's for our, two divers. Yeah, that's that's what we normally do. We don't go any bigger than or smaller than that. And it, it you want to me the proper sized ice hole. If anybody makes a comment about your ice hole, then you can <laughs> reference us. Uh, but you should be able to have a diver in each corner. So if you have three divers in your ice hole, then, you know, that's a good ice hole. And were you up there when we did the rectangular hole? Because then we have the ladder, the platform. Did you ever no, dive with the platform? No, I have not been anywhere we've had the rectangular ice hole. Uh, when we have the ice platform in, you just can't beat that, though. Because you can stand on the platform, service your gear, turn around, put the gear on the ice, mm -hmm. undo it, and then walk out. And then when I you're think, down, it's it's really nice having the platform. Well, that's all I can say. We've, and it I've helps minimize a, a lot of that stuff, too. Yeah, I, I've done a couple where we brought pallets out, and then we stood up on pallets. But I don't think I've done one where you – because I remember you describing the, the full you know, platform that you have. Yep. No, haven't done that, but we haven't had any great ice in at least the last – Two years. Two, two years, years now. And I'm not too optimistic this year. I well, thought earlier. Got, that's what got me here because January 11th is this picture, and they've only got six inches of ice, and that's in Nebraska. And I thought they were darn sight colder than us. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they can. Depends where it is. I think some parts of Nebraska are actually farther south than we are, but I guess it depends on wind and temperature. We just haven't had those cold. You know, vortexes, the polar vortexes coming yeah. in, and free stuff up. But we still have February here. It's yeah. not over yet. I, I do know that if thou, I were that tinder, I would have me a life vest on in addition to what I've got. When we do, we quite often have somebody in a dryer or another suit tending us. So if something goes with the ice mm -hmm. and they go in, they're not going to be extremely yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. I, I like, you know, if, if you have a uh, dry suit on, I mean, that's that's a good way to do it. And it's really nice having those pallets. If you can mm -hmm. keep off the ice and you're the safety diver and a chair with your feet up, makes a tremendous difference. But you've been out there. I mean, we put up the ice shanties, the heaters, oh, yeah. bring the sleds out, oh, make yeah. the big circle. It's a lot of fun if they have it. Only thing they didn't say is how deep they were either. I was very curious about that. Well, they're making fish habitat, so uh, I'm assuming part of this sponsorship was 
they're doing this fish habitat to help the the fishermen on that lake. It's kind of a hey, look what the what you can do. We help fishing by creating these habitats because I can't believe there's a huge commercial market. It has to be conservation groups and just you know personal people are issued and interested in maintaining some nice fishing populations so you can go catch them. Because yeah, a lot of people will do this. They'll put down the Christmas trees. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's really good for the small fish because they can go in and out. They're protected from the big the big guys. And it, it, it's something to do. Yeah. And they're interesting to see underwater. If you can see a Christmas tree. Yeah. Well, we'll go to Lake 16. You got a Christmas tree forest. I'm trying to rem- I don't know if I've seen that. Yeah, if you if you were how uh, we go down from the hole on top of the platform, go down mm-hmm. to the bottom of the platform, skeletons on the left of the mm-hmm. riser coming up by the boat, go left yeah. of that and you'll walk into the Christmas tree forest or swim well, into it. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever actually gone that way. Usually we tend to go the right and out, you know, get back out there by the the boat and the snowmobile and And then go yeah, and then follow the line out to the deeper water. Yeah. And usually by the time you get back out there, somebody's gotten cold or so you kind of heading your way back. Unless you're a rebreather guy and then you got that nice warm air in your chest. Oh, yeah. Makes you feel so good. Yeah. Rebreather guys, yeah, they, I think we could be up and halfway to the uh, establishment for food and drinks uh, by the time he runs out of air. Oh, that's true. And then these next three articles are all related to the Titanic. And I thought it was kind of interesting how I don't see anything for long amounts of time. And then all of a sudden here they are. So this first one's out of the New York post, which is the New York post, a newspaper anymore. Let me see. I haven't a clue. Uh, New York post holdings. I was just trying to see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're kind of there. So says Titanic shipwreck to be protected under a treaty between the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, the new treaty agreed to by the United States and United Kingdom more than 100 years after the ill-fated ship sank to the bottom of the sea when hit an iceberg. The formal agreement includes managing and safeguarding one of the world's most culturally significant sites. Who writes this crap? What makes it the world one of the world's most culturally significant sites? When you say one, how many? One of how many is it? Is there five sites? Is there ten? Is there twenty? Or can you have one million? You know, it is one of the one million most. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's it's almost like they. If this is written by artificial intelligence, they just add the blocks together. Uh, This momentous agreement with the United States to preserve the wreck means it will be treated with a sensitive respect owed to the final resting place of more than 1,500 lives, the British Maritime Minister Nasrat Ghani in a statement announcing the news on Tuesday. The UK will now work closely with our North Atlantic states, uh, with other North Atlantic states to bring even more protection to the wreck of the Titanic. The Titanic hit the iceberg at 11.40 p.m. ship's time on April 14, 1912, and sank on its main voyage just two hours later with the loss of all but 706 of the 2,223 people on board. 
The incident led to the drawing up of the Safety of Live Sea Convention in 1914, which sets the minimum safety standards by which ships are required to comply worldwide. I'm delighted that we're taking the steps to protect the Titanic, which played such a famous part in Belfast's proud maritime history. Uh, somebody from Ireland. Uh, police came across the world to the Titanic Belfast Visitor Center, and the new measures are hugely symbolic of its continued role in the city's growing tourism industry. And they go on and on. And, you know, we, we know most of the story about it. Well, I'm uh, curious. It says, has also attracted scavengers and others who have not been respectful of the site that sits 1,250 feet below the surface. So so scavengers. So somebody was just out in the weekend jaunt and, you know, scavenged the site. I thought well, everything it, that was taken was was properly done. Well, it it says down here, Robert Ballard, who found the wreck, attacked private submarine operators for inflicting damage on the deck during vessel landings. Okay. And there's some kind of uh, international agreement that they've had in effect since that, meaning uh, 1986. And uh, it's only coming into force now, as it was not accepted by the U.S. until last November. But I don't know how you – you can't really preserve the wreck. All they want you to do is not go down and touch it because it's fallen apart. We already know that. Right. And they figured, what, in 56 years, there will be very little left of that because of the reaction of the metal to the water at that particular depth. And you got the russicles, the bacteria that are that they weren't aware of that have greatly diminished the structure of the I call it the steel. Yeah. Well, the part I really think is interesting. You know, they're talking about the sacred shouldn't take things, scavengers. The new agreement will be tested quickly as a US private company reports to cut open a section of the deckhouse roof to access and retrieve thousands of precious artifacts. Wouldn't you think you'd want to bring the precious artifacts up to share that with the population of the states and Belfast? I would think so. Yeah, because you've discovered it. Take all the pictures you can because that's in the best shape it's ever going to be in is what it's in right now. And then strategically take what makes sense to bring up and tour. Well, like they said, the researcher who discovered the species of bacteria lurking in the rusticles growing off the wreckage told the Brisbane Times that the ship may have just 30 years left before it basically vanishes for good. Yeah. So in 50 years, let's say, if it did, it's still a grave site at 1,250 feet since there's probably not going to be absolutely anything left, if anything. Yeah. That's an interesting question, though. What is a, a grave site? I mean, if you're an well, archaeologist, you can go wherever you want and dig up whatever you want. Yeah. You know, people who have intentionally been buried. We dig people up for graveyards when we need them for a highway. Um, you know, people die all over the place. We don't, like, coordinate off and go, oh, no, you, you can't visit here. Somebody died this. Yeah, that needs to be preserved. So I don't know. 
Titanic's dark secret that helped the ship, the sink ship exposed. And I haven't quite been able to figure out if this is serious or not. Express, home of the Daily and Sunday Express. Okay. Uh, so they got, a, if, if it's a fake article, they've got a lot of details in it. So the Titanic's owners made a shortcut that created the perfect storm leading to the sinking of the vessel, according to claims by researchers that have been dubbed its dark secret. The British passenger liner famously sank in the North Atlantic Ocean seabed in early hours, April 15th, 1912, which we covered in a previous article. Uh, and they go on, they provide some background. Um, Let's see here. Uh, wild conspiracy theories claim that the Titanic was switched to this near identical sister ship Olympic, which crashed a year early in an elaborate insurance scam. While the possibility has been ruled out, there are still questions over apparent money saving tactics taken by the owners. Amazon's Titanic arrogance revealed. I'm not sure. You what know what the meant. secret was, don't you? What they're talking about here? Yeah. Yeah. Is that there was coal that was burning? Yeah. In the midst of the mayhem, the Titanic kept a dark secret that the coal in the bottom of bunker number six was on fire for the duration of the journey. Researchers claim that such a blaze may have weakened the ship's hull before it struck an iceberg. I mean, it's it's interesting. It seemed like that would have been, been logged somewhere, wouldn't it? Well, it seemed like you have another indication that if I were in a ship and I were down below deck and I was pumping coal into the furnaces, I'd have a vested interest to know if there's a fire in my area. Well, and there was a lot of, I mean, there were hearings on this that were very public. And it seems like that people who were getting in trouble would have thrown that out. Well, it wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. I'm not the one who lit the fire. Yeah, yeah. So that would have that would have been a perfect distraction from other causes and factors. So, uh, yeah, Mr. Mooney claims that the incident was a catalyst to the perfect storm. Uh, and let's see, not all experts. I said the the fires occurred frequently on board steamships due to spontaneous combustion of the coal, but not all experts are in agreement with Mr. Maloney. Our author Samuel Halpin concluded the bunker would not have weakened the watertight bulkhead sufficiently to cause its collapse. Also has been suggested the coal bunker fire actually helped the Titanic to last longer during the sinking, prevent the ship from rolling over to starboard due to the subtle port list that moving the coal inside prior to the encounter with the iceberg. So are they maintaining that it did happen? Or is this is this a case of something that routinely happened so it wouldn't have even been covered i don't know I've, I've never really heard of that though have you on any no of the no, I don't. Lake michigan wrecks i know we've had fires but it's not fires in a coal bunker well in coal it's like in virginia they got coal fires been going for 100 years yeah it seems like that would not be a good thing you'd want to do because coal can get hot i mean i guess if you starved it of air it would could reduce the combustion I'm not I'm not sure but if you have a coal bunker fire don't you have smoke fumes I would think so I don't know I have to look that up now darn it <laughs> yeah 
Because, I mean, you've got to have heat, fuel, and oxygen to have a combustion. So, huh. But, yeah, there's a conspiracy. And I thought that was interesting that that came out. And then at the same time, when they're talking about this, there's never before seen Titanic artifacts on display the first time in Las Vegas. Uh, for the first time since opening its doors 10 years ago, Titanic, the artifact expedition in Las Vegas, has unveiled a never-before-seen artifacts that help paint the picture historic shipwreck. We wanted to celebrate a new decade at the Luxor, so we selected 20 items never been seen before, as well as items never been seen together or in Vegas itself. Alexander Klingerhofer, Experimental Media Group Executive Director for the Collection, told Fox News. Some of the artifacts include an hourglass, a pair of leather boots, a case of test tubes, a cosmetic jar with cream, and other items. The last time we recovered artifacts was in 2004. When we recover artifacts, we are the stewards forever, so it means we have to treat them initially, and each time the material takes a long time to treat. We selected those items that we think would be compelling to the current audience, but we never stop conserving things. We never stop researching them. The British, then they go on talk a little bit more. Uh, I mean, there's some interesting items, but if I was in an antique shop and you didn't tell me that these were from the Titanic, I would go, eh. Well, that's the whole thing, though, is the history. Do you have proof that this came from XYZ? And if you have it, wouldn't you? It'd be quite interesting. So I've got a silver dollar that was recovered from the Havana, from the Titanic. Yeah. Or you've got a gold doubloon or silver from the Troche. That's yeah. what people go for. Where did yeah. you get it from? Yeah, it's a story. Yep. The pin belonged to George Washington. Here's the picture of him using it. Yeah. But I think it's interesting that on one hand, they're considered, uh, they were being put forth as scavengers. Here, they're saying they are preserving for all, you know, patuity, impetuity. Yeah. So you can't do both, I suppose. It depends on your angle you're looking at it. But it seems that both sides of this have decided to push some publicity at the same time. Uh, probably to try and counter each other. So they're saying that they've got, uh, they filed with a judge for an expedition to the Titanic sometime in 2020 in hopes of learning more about the deterioration as well as additional researches on artifacts and marine life. Yeah. Well, like that one part said, Mother Nature continues to take its course, closing the window for researchers to explore and gather at this point more data from the wreckage. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't get better. I mean, the only argument you can say is that maybe somebody in a few years is going to have better techniques for analyzing what's there in its current place and condition, but that condition's deteriorating quicker than you're going to develop new techniques to uh, research it. And, and nobody's going to build a bubble around it and, protect it i mean they're not going to treat the water they're not going to preserve it so yeah it's just going to continue to break down i mean my personal thought is as long as there's a home for it and a way of displaying it then bring it up but if not then there you go 
And they said, how about this? A huge 600-year-old shipwreck found at the bottom of the river Vistula. 37-meter shipwreck has been discovered by archaeologists in the Vistula River near Warsaw. The team believed that the vessel, which is six meters wide, could date back to as far as 14th century, where there was a cargo ship or punt used to transport up to 100 ton of goods in times when Poland was Western Europe's main grain supplier. Covering over a dozen kilometers and hindered by muddy water, scientists used sonars to comb the riverbed. In addition to the punt, they also found smaller shipwreck in the remains of a World War II bridge. Uh, Arthur from the Archaeologist Tomorrow Association, and uh, you notice I'm avoiding names I can't pronounce. When they got characters, I don't even know what they are. I, there's no hope. Uh, it is most probably a punt, the type of transport ship that was used from 14th to 18th century. The exact date will be determined by examining samples taken from the sunken ship. Discover the punt, archaeologists sailed about 400 kilometers in parallel stripes using sonar exploring 13 kilometers of the river. And I like what they did here. Did you see the side scan image? Yeah, yeah. And then they superimposed the boat, which that's kind of a cool boat. It's, just, it's a little small, but heck, probably. Looks crazy. like a Zodiac. Yeah, yeah, it's like a Zodiac. Uh, I would say that's probably not much bigger, if not the same size as Bob's actually maybe smaller yeah yeah because yeah, they don't really other than it's superimposed on there but uh that that's nice i like the 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 perspective when we dive we see a maximum distance of 10 to 20 centimeters yeah i mean hopefully you get a little bit better than that but that's i, I like their comment where they say the search is not facilitated by the river the rapid river current search is not facilitated by the rapid river current i think that's just lost in translation i it's think it's be because you're looking at this picture then you're looking at the the yeah. dugout here and it's mm -hmm. like what current yeah well see what they're doing is that the t the side scan shows it under uh in the river that dugout there is a different vessel that was one that was found in 2009, south of Warsaw. So that looks like it's in a field there, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So that and it that's, looks like what that sonar looks like. Yeah. So that that's what they're saying is that both of these are punts. Yeah. And they said that's the best preserved punt that they found in 2009. Uh, yeah. It says anyway, we don't think we can count on much in my opinion the boat was pro most probably transporting grain such goods have no right to survive I, translation I think, yeah, translation <laughs> i think there's no expectation that that grain is gonna survive for that many hundred years especially in a river i mean fish it seems like fish or somebody would have eaten it a uh, second wreck found during the last research in orsa areas near uh Berkow, Berkow, uh, just 15 kilometers from the capital. And that that one's also got a crane. Or is that the same one? I think that's the same one as in the up the top view. Uh, yeah, two views of it. Yeah. Yeah, they said uh, the 30-meter-long vessel of the 15th century was extracted in 2008 after being left in the water to preserve it. 
So they must have found it, then flooded it to help keep it preserved. And then when they had, because they found it in 2009, and then they spent nine years before they actually had the resources to bring it up. That says most probably a fairy from the late 19th or 20th centuries that had a side linear sides century as it has side linear slides most likely used for ropes the best preserved punt in poland was found in 2009 which is the one we saw in the photos up there that's kind of an interesting vessel uh kind well, of a flat bottom go ahead no i was going to say the, the pictorial of it uh the model reconstruction is interesting mm-hmm. but again i'm i'm looking at how much money do they spend and what value, what really value do they get from the intelligence of this vessel that's worth the money invested? Well, they need to get it out of there so they put more of those grape vineyards in behind it. <laughs> I I think a lot, some of it's just local pride and interest. I mean, everybody likes to, I mean, that's a fun project to work on. If you've, if you've somehow got the money, I'd hate to see what the decision was of, what resources are taken from who to be able to enable that. But uh, it'd be interesting. But how many of them do you need? So do you, what did they do with this one? So this was extracted in 2018. So here we are, you know, probably a year and a half since then. I mean, did they put it in a water tank? Are they preserving it? Are they reassembling it? You know, they turning it I'm, into kidney? I'm always... I'm always curious of the return on the investment of both time and money for the product that they they get out of it. Yeah. Uh, it'd it have to vary. I, I'm sure sometimes they do quite well. Sometimes it's probably you got to find a rich person. I, well, it's like I'm not an archaeologist, obviously, but I find it more interesting when there's objects on it like cannon and treasure yeah. and or even lots of cargo. Yeah. Because yeah. to me, then you have something tangible that you can show for your efforts that have some monetary worth and a lot of interest. Well, let's, let's say that, you know, the equivalent today would be a semi and, in, you know, in a trailer. So say that slides off the road, gets in the ditch, gets covered in mud and everybody forgets about it. And then they dig it up 300 years from now. What are they learning about our culture from that? I mean, is that it, they would not have already known by historical artifacts and or right. that which was written. And then is a 70s semi more important than a 75 or an 80? <laughs> or, I mean, they go, oh, this is a perfect example of a six-cylinder transverse mount diesel, you know. Yeah, and that's where it kind of comes with these vessels is everybody's like, oh, this is a perfect example. We're going to learn the construction. We're going to learn this. Okay. I'm, I'm curious how they found that first one in the middle of that field. If they were digging or making, you know, irrigation pond or something and then stumbled across it. They never did say how they located this one, did they? Not in this article, but when you see where it's by, it looked like it was. Like this might be, I think if we were zoomed back, you might see this as like a creek or a tributary. Uh, you know, cause if you, you know, maybe the, a river changed course after this had sunk. And so this kind of dried up. 
Yeah. But there's like a little group of trees and maybe a pond and some other stuff. Uh, but it's in a vineyard. So, yeah, there was there was something there. Uh, or maybe somebody knew it was there all along. You know, it had been like a local story of like, yeah, you don't mess there. There's there's wood. You can see stuff. And somebody decided to dig it up. Okay, I just went and found me a map of that area. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there was a river that went by that. Certain sections of it was rather large. Mm-hmm. But looking at the map nowadays, it's hardly. Uh, you need it is not something you're going to navigate. Well, you got the vineyard there, and then you got the fruit trees or olive trees. I can't tell which. You know, off to the left, you got to you got to get the water for that from somewhere. And uh, you get it from the Vistula River. That's where the tributaries come and feed it. Oh, so it's the same same river as the one where they found the. The vessel, other than quite a quite a ways inland, but mm-hmm. there's if you look at the maps and the uh, tributaries feeding and going to and from, I, I can see where that went. So it would be shallower there, but once you got to the bigger river, now you can transport. That's what I was trying to figure is where they. Oh, and that's a major river too. All right. Well, I mean, these are not small vessels. Well. So at some point, even though they're fairly shallow, you've you've got to get them down. So, what what was the, what was the length of them? They said again, six meter wide. Did they say a length, hundred tons, thirty seven meter long. So that's over a hundred some feet. That's not you don't like. Could you imagine a hundred some foot? Well, it's like down? a schooner. Yeah, but would would you run that through the St. Joe River before dams were there? Uh, yeah. Because how they used to like, run eighty foot barges from South Bend okay. all the way to Lake Michigan. Okay. Well, cool. So then, this is this, this would be a similar size river then. Yeah, and looking at it in the background, you can see sections of it right there. Yeah, I can see the trees and the brush. So. Uh, yeah. Probably the, the narrower parts are going to be deeper and the wider parts would be shallower. Yeah. Then you probably were aware of river levels and rain and season and took advantage of it. And as they said, the, the, this was just a way of rapidly, I mean, it was the highways of the day. So we had a lot of grain. That was about the most efficient way to move it. Yeah. And then a little bit more to the east, you have the Russian lake divers make a unique find. This one from diversnet.com. Uh, they said, was it Lagdoga is Europe's largest freshwater lake. Russia's second biggest after Lake Bacall lies in the Krylia in the northwest bordering Finland. With low visibility, very cold water, and la- the lake presents challenge for divers. Although it's believed to hold many shipwrecks and remains of many military equipment, it has not been extensively explored. Members of the Divo Diving Club in the further south in two towns I won't pronounce first visited Lake in search of wrecks in 2017. They came across remains while carrying out a side scan sonar survey, returned last year in a bid to dive and identify the wreck. The 30 meter Wallaman 
Lostari started life in Sweden in 1860 as the Gusroff of Clint and from 1889 under the Finnish ownership as the Kajel. After 70 years of service carrying passengers and goods in the Baltic and reportedly maintained an excellent condition, it began work at the Balam Ladenforia route in Lake Luganda in 1931 under its new name, the Wallaman Lestari, which means Valum Monastery. The boat, became, the boat became a victim of bilateral conflict known as the Winter War, which began with Soviet Union invaded neutral Finland three months into World War II. Parts of the Lagoda belonged to Finland at the time, including the island of Alam, where the wreck was found, and all lake vessels, including the Wallaman Lasari, were relinquished by the Finnish Navy to form a war flotilla. In January 22, 1940, the vessel, which was being used as an unarmed transport vessel, was attacked in the Nikonansvike Bay in three Soviet bombers. One bomb struck the stern when fire broke out and was followed by three more direct hits. The crew managed to escape in lifeboats, and within 75 minutes, the vessel had sunk to the depth of 12 meters. So about 38 feet. 36, 38 feet, yeah. Yeah. It was the only combat vessel lost among the flotilla during the six-month conflict. The Divo Club divers had initially believed that it had found the wreck of the vessel called the St. Sergius, but their dives revealed the Wallaman Lastari nameplate on the wreck. Participation in this exploration was a rare opportunity to touch history club members, uh, told DiverNet. For me, diving in the difficult conditions, the poor visibility and low temperatures were first. There was a solid darkness around, and first I was confused. But then I saw my torchlight. The side of the ship, I saw well-preserved hemp ropes and masts fallen slightly to one side. I tried to investigate each porthole to see what it was inside. The charred timbers reminded me of the fire that occurred on board in the distant 1940. It was like a time capsule. Nothing seemed to have changed in 80 years apart from the accumulation of sediment. Yeah, cool. I mean, that's that's a fun find. That's a good, good uh, use of a few weekends. Did you notice the uh, soda bottles they have on there? I just looked up the uh, area on the map. Uh-huh. That whole place, you know, where they say uh, land of lakes, thousand uh-huh. lakes, that whole place is water. <laughs> and got to be freaking cold. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I just looked up on Google Maps. And if you start saying St. Petersburg, all right. I know where it's at now because if you're in Finland and you're taking the little channel from the Baltic over to St. Petersburg, the first major body of water is that lake. Okay. And if you look at Finland, it's, Finland is just nothing but water. They must have a hell of a lot of bridges. And I was trying to find the, the, the route from the Baltic to there. But that's a pretty good size uh, – lake i did have a side thought too when you were talking about the names and stuff Mm -hmm. i pretended you were talking klingon because that's what it sounded like (laughs) (laughs) i I don't even yeah i don't even try to pronounce that yeah get Worf to come over and translate it yeah 
And I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. Oh, I, there's, I just have no, no chance. Uh, <laughs> you know, my, my, my grandmother was Finnish and uh, spoke Finnish and they never, she, we never heard her say, speak any of it. I don't, I don't think my mom had heard her say it. She was always mad that they wouldn't, but you'd, she said you'd occasionally hear it when she'd get with all her cousins and aunts and then it would break into some discussions in the old language. I'd like to have heard some more from the divers about what they're wearing, what else they dive on, because I bet they got some great stories. Oh, yeah. Well, this is perfect because it this, this is exploring. You're going in the area. There's There's been opportunity. I mean, dive gear isn't new. Somebody could have, with the desire, gone and dove it, but eh, nobody did. So they did, took up, took it up, did some research, and figured out, hey, let's go find it. And you know there's a lot of stuff out there. I mean, they had stories. Yeah, well. When you think about it, if they, if they were, if there was an active conflict, you've also got some probably live ordinances that are still sitting there in the bottom. When you start talking bombs and stuff, I would think so. Yeah. So it's yeah, cool. You, you, you do that braille dive. You do a little spike in one hand, a hammer in the other, and you just like smack it around. See if you can find something. That's cool. And then a shipwreck off Florida's coast pits archaeologists against treasure hunters. Kind of a theme going on here. You got two two edges. The, the uh, discovery of the legendary wreck raises questions about who should control sunken riches. This article is from Maritime Law, Herakai Magazine, an online publication about science and society and coastal ecosystems. And they have links in the story. Uh, we got the article from Smithsonian Magazine. Most visitors come to Cape Canaveral, uh, tourists, 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 hit the K, and they go on. Three paragraphs that say nothing about the content. Cape Canaveral contains one of the richest concentrations of colonial shipwrecks in the world. Though a majority of them have never been found in recent years, advanced radar, sonar, scuba diving, detection equipment, computers, and GPS have transformed the hunt. The naked eye might see a pile of rocks, centuries of concretions, crests of coral decayed in worm-eaten wood, oxidized metal, but technology can reveal the precious artifacts that lie hidden full fathoms five on the ocean floor. This technology renders a seedbed more accessible. Hunt for treasure-laden ships has drawn a fresh tide of salvers and their investors as well as marine archaeologists wanting to exhume the lost relics but as late the salvers have found vessels the rights have been challenged in court the big question who should have dominion over the was it glockendas of the sea i'm I'm not even sure what they're going there high stakes fight over shipwrecks and pit archaeologists against treasure hunters and various cycle of accusations the archaeologists regard themselves as protectors of history and the human story and they see salvers as careless destroyers salvers feel they do the hard grunt work of uh, searching for ships for months and years only to have them stolen up from them when discovered this kind of clash inevitably takes place in a grand scale aside from the salvers their investors and maritime archaeologists who serve as expert witnesses the battles sweep in local and international governments and organizations like UNESCO that work to protect underwater heritage. The court cases that ensue stretch, stretch on for years, 
their finder keepers are the ships belong to countries that made them and sent them centuries ago, where once salvers and archaeologists worked side by side. Now they belong to opposing and equally contemptuous tribes. Nearly three million vessels lie wrecked on the Earth's ocean floor, from old canoes to the Titanic, and less than 1% have been explored. Some, like ancient Roman ships found off Antithikira, Greece, dated between 70 and 60 BCE, carrying astonishingly sophisticated gears and dials for navigation by the sun. And they go on some more. Um, and they, okay, and they go on, and they go on. So it, it's it's worth a read. It's interesting. Uh, I think Smithsonian's trying to take a, an even position on this. Uh, but, you know, so I'm I'm more than happy to let you go and search for them, but you dare not find them. And when you do, I'm taking them away. I I like the old admiralty, admiralty law in the old days. He who finds it, it's theirs. And if it's that critical, how come you didn't go back and get it yourself? Yeah. Well, I've kind of liked what uh, Great Britain has done with, uh, you know, the treasure and hoards in Great Britain. I, I, I like, yeah, if you're a treasure hunter. I do yeah. too. If if you find it, you give it to them. Not give it to them, but you turn it over, turn it over. They do the evaluation, and if they want it, they pay you full. They pay you market value. Exactly. How can you do, beat that? Do the same here. That's I mean, a win-win. Right. The investors are happy because they get their money quick. It doesn't go through court. And if the yeah. investors find this, these really unique artifacts, they're not destroying them. They're going to preserve them just like the archaeologists because they're going to sell them. Right. And they're going to get seen a lot more than in some basement that nobody ever is going to get to. Right. Like the Smithsonian. <laughs> you have no clue to what they have hidden away in boxes and barrels. Oh, they got tons. And what tons. is that? Um, when they, you know, uh, I can't think. The Arch Ark of the Covenant, you know. In the movie, oh, when they Ra- found Raiders it. of the Lost Ark, right. the uh, they, Ark of they, the Covenant. And, and yeah. you went back into that warehouse storage area that went on for oh, miles yeah. and miles. That's exactly it. Yeah. Well, I, the uh, when Carter found King Tut's tomb and they set up a, a museum to store it in, that, well, they just built a brand new museum because it's going to bring tourism dollars, dollars. They're moving stuff from the old museum to the new museum. They're, they came across so much stuff that nobody had ever seen yeah. just because it was just sit there packed, stored. Nobody was taking an effort to look at it. They had so many pieces and you only bring out the stuff that creates the audience that people will pay to go see. Yeah. King Tom. You know, yeah. We're, yeah. They, they want to see the gold face mask. They want to see something, uh, you know, a few unique pictures. You can do a story too. And then the rest just sit there. And if you, don't have the resources to conserve them they just die in the basement they they probably are going to die live a lot shorter life there than they would anywhere else right i just look at oak island right now Mm -hmm. (laughs) Ah. how much money have people put in that place oh gosh over the years well like uh that was another one we were talking before the show my my dad and i uh like to talk about and and watch where 
the first season, they're like, oh, I don't know. We can only drill two holes. That might be it for the year. Now they're like damming stuff up. They're putting in a pier system. They're draining things. They're. I'd have put that coffer dam out there further and I'd have. That's what you, you put the freaking coffer dam in, get rid of the water aspect and you dig it out. Duh. Yeah. Well, and you, but you've seen it this year. They did the bump out. Yeah. 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 But what would that cost? I mean, that's got to be a, a half million dollar project to do that, wouldn't you say? They have spent millions on that. Yeah. Do you ever look it up to see how much money they get? All that money is, of course, going back into the uh, production of trying to find out what that lasting treasure is. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm having fun watching it. Uh, I, I do end up falling asleep about the last 10 minutes of the show every every Tuesday, but. I just get a kick. I watch a guy with a metal detector go around. Oh, I sweep, <laughs> my sweep is so different than his. It's And I just don't know. I'd love to go there for free. I'd, I'd go metal detecting for him. Uh-huh. But uh, well, he, it's got to be put on because their video in it and they want to show action and movement. Yeah. Because in real life, I'm a lot slower than that. Yeah. Well, and how many hours? Have has he been on that? Have you know? He he finds what five or six pieces a year, but they keep you know. But it's all about the uh, making it interesting. Got to tie it all together. So, but I enjoy it. I keep watching. And then this is the last article this week. From not having many, we sure went through a few of them. Uh, one one oh, quick item here. Oh, on this did. whole little aspect, mm-hmm. I really like this one article. Many treasure hunters do not understand they're going to have to fight for their rights against a government that has an endless supply of money for legal battles, and treasure hunters are likely to lose because they have more money than you. And that's exactly what it is. It's not history. It's not archaeology. It's who's got the most money and what can I get from it for what I put in. Well, uh, we we need to have uh, our friend who recovers planes back on the show and have him talk about some of his frustrations with uh, the Navy. Yeah, bureaucracies. And that's all yes. about control. That's somebody who's like, piss on it. If you don't make me feel like king and bow down to my wishes, you're not going to get to do anything. And it's uh, just kind of a whim and a desire. That's for another episode. Yeah. So lithium ion battery safety. We we kind of skipped over that. So undercurrent subscriber Larry Ober, an electronics engineer who's been responsible for designing various products that use lithium batteries, wrote to undercurrent after reading uh, their warning about lithium ion battery fires in October mid-month email. He says it is important to distinguish the difference between pure lithium batteries and lithium-ion batteries. Lithium-ion batteries are like the ones used to power your underwater light. In fact, most rechargeable batteries nowadays are lithium-ion. These include lithium-polymer batteries. He says that pure lithium batteries are only the non-rechargeable ones. For example, a CR123 photo battery and AA-sized lithium are non-rechargeable types. He cites overcharging, overloading, by causing power to bigger wattage than for the ones in which they were designed 
internal short circuits and external heat sources culprits for lithium ion batteries overheating with the risk of fire. Those batteries can contain large amounts of powder, and this powder could be a source of reignition energy given the proper conditions. Simply, if the battery overheats to the point where it vents its contents, some of the contents are flammable and may ignite due to sparks or just being hot enough. Lithium-ion batteries can easily reignite after catching fire because they produce so much heat. Copious amounts of water should be used to cool off the battery. The FAA recommends that the use of carbonated water soda pop for dousing lithium-ion batteries in aircraft cabins, but Ober says that evidence uh, that the advice ignores the risk of noxious gases so produced. He suggests to use a dry chemical extinguisher to fight the fire, followed by water to cool. He had some industry recommendations are really to be too simplistic to be useful. Lithium battery fire should not be extinguished with water since the lithium burns when it comes in contact with it. Daniel Emerson from the light manufacturer Light and Motion points out that the diving industry seems only too willing to employ loose lithium-ion cells with other industries do not. The idea behind the battery is to separate the two highly reactive materials. The larger the electric potential between them, the greater the power density. Lithium-ion batteries are effective because the anode and cathode materials are so volatile when brought together. There are a number of ways the battery membrane can be breached and cause a fire. The quality of the membrane, the slip of a slight phosphorus polymer, polypropylene yeah polypropylene separating reactive materials is critical lacks quality control can lead to cells with slight tear or defect in the thin membrane that can grow as lights are stressed during repeated charge cycles and cause a failure impurities in the battery materials used poorly manufactured separator or damage from external sources that piece the, that pierces the separator causing the cells to short rapidly converting all the energy in the cell to heat, resulting in an exothermic oxidizing reaction, increasing the temperature to hundreds of degrees in a fraction of a second, causing the neighboring cells to heat up rapidly, making a chain thermal reaction. So buy the best lithium-ion batteries you can and take great care with them. A hard knock or rough handling can damage the inner membrane and short it to battery pack and cause a fire. Yeah, and 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 that's it. When you look, ignoring the boat fires, uh, when you see lithium ion cells and they've had problems, and we've seen them in, you know, laptops and other devices, it's usually uh, a slight manufacturing defect in the process where they they're rolling these cells to put them together. Uh, and it only takes one in 10,000 to be bad for it to be a major recall. So I'm trying to get the gist of this article. Are they saying that divers are notoriously worse worse on batteries than normal use? I think it's a combination of items. One, you want to get higher quality batteries to begin with, which costs more. And part of another article he had written indicated that I won't say American batteries are better, but sometime when you have two batteries that look alike and one's half as much as the other one, and the other one is not produced necessarily by a reputable company, mm-hmm. not necessarily in the States, yep. but you have a knockoff, 
that knockoff gives you the potential because it may not have had the same quality standards for it being yeah. built. And that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's time and effort. Um, you know, the, to get that price down, you got to put less labor into it and the labor has to be less expensive. Um, and so. when I usually charge up anything I have that has rechargeable batteries, period, I put it on a surface that's non-flammable, such as a steel tabletop or my, I use it, uh, I have a concrete area downstairs. I put mm-hmm. my batteries on when I charge and I put the batteries obviously on something different than concrete. But uh, I think that's a lot of it right there. Well, I'm surprised somebody hasn't come up with a charging station that could be used in high-risk environments. Like, say you had a steel box you know, that was all properly grommeted and sealed, and you put the batteries in there. And if one did catch fire, you've contained it to be inside this container. I mean, it seems like somebody could engineer something. And, you know, how much is your dive boat worth? By the same token, though, how many people do you know have had a lithium battery go bad or create a fire? I have I, not. And no, I don't and, know anybody in the club. No, and, and I work in the technology industry and across all my locations and sister companies. We have not, I have not heard of a single case of like a laptop or a computer battery, UPS batteries. Now I have taken uh, equipment apart and when it, a lot of times when it fails, they'll have bulged. So I'll have a UPS and it's beeping and it's only got five, you know, it used to have two hours of life and now it's got five minutes. You open that up and through the charge decharge cycles, it is broken down and something's failed inside and it will have swollen. Yeah. Uh, so bulging, I think, is common, and it's amazing that doesn't turn into be something more. But I have not had any actually catch on fire. But it is if you've got an electronic device with a battery and and you notice it's extremely hot, uh, it may be worth investigating or you know checking it out, taking proper precautions. But on a dive boat where people are sleeping overnight and the staff is not staying awake, uh, you know, that's kind of a recipe for disasters we're starting to see. Provided yep. that that's the the cause, but I think that's going to come down to it. I think when they get that well, down, I, I would I would put my money on that. Well, that's just generally if um, if you don't wait till it's dead and you do a trickle charge. Mm-hmm. I've never had a battery get too hot if I did it on trickle charge or I didn't try to charge it all at once because I, I wanted it in two hours. So I put it on mag charge with uh, a greater current. Yeah. Well, and that's what they're saying. Like if you look at uh, even like these electric cars, the way they're able to get these rapid charging rates is that they're water cooling those battery packs. They got water flowing in and around or, or cooling at least in or around all those cells and they only rapid charge like the first half. Cause as, as it continues to charge through its time, uh, you, as you get closer to the peak voltage, you want to slow that down. So you can get, ha- you know, you might be able to do half the charge in 20, 30, 40 minutes, but when you get to the rest of it, you need to take a little bit longer. 
uh, and then also, uh, it's the connection from the, uh, electrodes that are charging. Those have, uh, they do a lot of motion. They expand and contract as they're going through that charge cycle. And that starts to break down the interiors of the battery. It's a lot of stress. And that's one of the things that, uh, current battery technology is working on ways to get around. Uh, I think this is something in 20 years we'll look back and say, God, look how silly we are. We didn't know how to properly build, design, maintain, or charge these types of devices. And how about this recovered World War I German U-boat revives sea monster tails? Wreck of the German, the World War I German submarines discovered off the coast of Scotland. And as I say this, this is actually a, a older article, a couple, a little over two years old. But researchers say they think the wreck is one of the German U-boats sunk by the British patrol ships in the Irish Sea in 1918, including one that supposedly attacked by a sea monster, according to Internet legend. Marine archaeologist and historian Innes McCartney from uh, Bournemouth University in UK said the submarine wreck was re- reasonably good shape considering it spent 100 years in a seafloor at a depth of 340 feet, 100 meters. When all other maritime, oh, when all other warships, wartime ships have crumbled down to nothing, the submarines will still be there because they're made to withstand the underwater marine. Did we lose you? No, I'm, I'm still here. Oh. I'm just reading through, seeing uh, what are some of the highlights of this. Uh, it had a 105-millimeter gun, so they said that narrowed it down to possibility of two UB-3 submarines that sunk in the area in April 1918. Both submarines have made their way around Germany and in northern Scotland and the Irish Sea to attack British shipping. We knew that they were there because they were chattering on the radio, and we have radio detecting fighting stations around Britain that would attract their movements reasonably accurately. So that's why there were... British patrol craft in the area, and that's why both the submarine were caught on the surface recharging their batteries. According to British war record, the UB-82 was sunk by two British patrol boats on April 17, 1918, resulting in the loss of all 37 crew members on board the submarine. UB-85 was sunk on April 30, 1918, by the British patrol ship HMS was a... Uh, Seraposis, but all that submarine crew members were rescued before it sank. Now, Sea Monster Tales, McCartney said, any further efforts to identify the newfound submarines would probably need to wait until researchers find the wreck of the other UB-3 class submarines known to have sunk in the area. It'd be nice for the other one to show, which it will do. These things are found so quickly these days, and now they've got two Maybe possible simply look at the damage compared to the combat reports from both instances and positional analysis to be fairly certain. If the latest wreck does turn out to be UB-85, the vessel's already found its way into legend on the Internet, at least. McCartney explained that the story had circulated the Internet for several years. The captain of the crew of the UB-85 reported their submarine was attacked by a sea monster, which damaged the vessel and forced it to stay on the surface, where it was spotted by the HMS Coriopus or something like that. Why am I not pronouncing that word? Uh, but McCartney's research have found no historic basis for the story, which first appeared online without any provenance around 2005. 
He noted that neither the captain of the UB-85 nor the crew mentioned the sea monster when they were interrogated by British naval intelligence officers after the rescue. The story of the sea monster falls in the longer trend going back to at least the 1930s when outlandish sea tales began being appended to First World War German submarines. I don't know why it is, but the first U-boat war just attracted these stories. You get haunted submarines like UB-65, which supposedly the dead crew member who haunted the boat, and then UB-28, another sea monster, supposed to attack that one. McCartney also ruled out any connection between the fate of the UB-85 and Scotland's most famous legendary beast, the Loch Ness Monster. But it's nice to think Nessie was doing her bit for the war effort. (laughs) Well, cool. So, Do we think they're going to find them all? Eventually. More of them by accident, like they're searching to put a pipeline in or a new Uh underwater cable and they run over it. That's how they're finding them. Yeah. Well, and you think about if somebody's really searching for it, should be a fairly small area and a magnetometer. This is going to show up pretty big. Um, Derek says he's diving his first World War I submarine this weekend. Wow. Oh, and then uh, he also shared in the chat room a LiPo safety bag for RC drones. So, see, that makes sense to me, just to have something. If you're, if you're thinking you're worried about it and, 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 you know, it's like batteries. We're so used to, like, double A's and you just leave them around and they go loose. But it's that rapid discharge. If you've got, if some, you know, if both poles or two contacts short, you're rapidly. Yeah, put them in your pocket with change. See yeah, how exactly. That works. Yeah. See how that works for you. I, I always like the old, uh, you know, lick your lick your hand, palm, and, like, squeeze them. No, yeah. you're supposed to suck on a lemon, put a piece of tin foil in your mouth, and then put the the two-pronged battery on your tongue. There you go. That's only that. <laughs> hey, it's that or tide pools, right? So, yeah, exactly. Tide, tide pod. pods. Yeah. <laughs> well, that does it to Scuba in the News. I think we put that all to death. Yeah, Derek, what could go wrong? Oh, wow. So diving, I don't think I've been seeing anybody get any diving and we're in a kind of that bad weather time of the year. Well, a couple of people have been going and doing programs. That's a big thing for January and February is you have a lot of rec presentations by museums and organizations. And of course, we've got coming up is the uh, Shipwreck Festival there in Lansing, or not Lansing, but Ann Arbor. So. You might not be getting wet physically, but you're immersed in uh, the scuba atmosphere. Yeah, and if you got some dive gear and you're not going to be doing any diving, drop it by the dive shop. I'm sure they'd love to use this slower time of the year to get your vises done, your hydros done, if you've got to get that, uh, You know, your annual service of your regulators. I, yeah, maybe I need to get my dry suit in there and get that valve change that drives me nuts trying to connect time is now so mac you have a dive safety story for this week okay i'll start out this way is it a problem or not a problem 
That is the question. Diving began on Thursday, and most of the dives were relatively deep in the range of 90 to 120 feet. The first day, I made three daytime dives and one night dive. All service intervals were at least two hours or more. And for all dives, everybody on board was using enriched air nitrox, EAN-32. On Saturday, though, I noticed an itchy feeling all around my torso on the second dive. Felt like scratching myself, but decided not to. After the third dive, which was a bit shallower, I noticed that I was no longer itchy. This phenomenon seemed to repeat itself over the next five days. After two dives on Monday, I felt itchy again. On this particular day, we were given the option to visit an island or do a third dive, and I opted to visit the island. After walking on the island for an hour or so, the itchiness seems to disappear. At first, I thought it could have been something to do with the saltiness of the water and completely ignored the itchiness. I had a dermatologic antibiotic ointment cream, which I rubbed over the itchy areas, but it didn't really seem to relieve the itchiness. As I continued to think about it, the skin pins came to my mind. However, I did not have model skin and itchiness did not return to or did not turn to pain on the torso, so eh, wasn't a big deal. On Wednesday, the last day of diving, the first dive was to a depth of 120 feet. Second dive was at a depth of 113 feet. After the second dive, I again felt itchy. I made a third dive two hours later, touching 81 feet, but the most of the dive was about 50 feet. I came up from this dive and again was relieved of all itchiness. Now, I suppose, in retrospect, the smartest thing to do when I felt I might be getting bent due to itchiness was to request oxygen, which was available on the boat. But I did not do this because... I thought that might be an extra charge for using oxygen. And also, I would be prevented from diving the remainder of the trip as a safety precaution. Since this was the most expensive trip I'd ever taken, you know, therefore I did not want to have to stop diving. However, common sense would have dictated it was better to stop diving than be flown to a chamber at excessively high cost. So the comment is, Mere itchiness without other signs or symptoms is not a common manifestation of decompression sickness. But even so, if the diver suspected decompression sickness, then there are a number of risk reduction strategies that the diver might have considered, such as making shallower dives, ascending well before getting near the decompression limit, making few dives per day, or having longer surface intervals between dives. Dan also recommends every diver carry adequate insurance when taking a dive holiday to greatly reduce the economic concerns in situations such as in this incidence. Because if you're really stupid and you really do get bent, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. I went ahead and looked that up a little bit. And Dan said, skin manifestations of decompression sickness are not uncommon, but many divers are not aware of it. Skin manifestations alone may not require treatment, but they require medical evaluation to exclude the possible neurological symptoms which the diver may not be aware that he has. Skin DSCS is sometimes associated with difficulty breathing and coughing, which is called the chokes. In such cases, it is very likely that a neurological symptom 
is present. And they can also be present without the chokes. First aid should be surface oxygen in case of the chokes and a neurological symptom should be evaluated while being transported to the emergency room. In this case, her symptoms resolve spontaneously. However, it is not advisable to continue diving with skin rash. They should be examined for neurological symptoms. And that's one of those cases, well, I know I shouldn't, but I do. Right. And it could have been, could have turned bad. I spent all that money. They're going to tell me don't dive. There you go. That's what you hear. Yeah, they're going to tell me don't dive. Don't do that. But, I mean, that's one of those things where you're, it's kind of, my cat's, another cat screaming at me. Uh, it's, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where until you feel it, you don't really know what it's like. So, you know, it's always advisable to err on the side of caution. But again, how often can you apply that to yourself? Oh, me never. How many times might someone say, well, maybe, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but you, you're not conservative. Right. And generally you're not conservative because like they said, they won't let me dive. They won't let me dive. You you can always die. Yeah. 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 That's kind of a, the ultimate result. So another good article. Yeah, so we've got that uh, dive show coming up. I also see all sorts of speaking tours um, going on. Do you got anything else you want to plug? So hopefully everybody is enjoying the program. If you are, we certainly could use your support. And thank you for the recent patrons we've been getting that are supporting the show. You go to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over to our Patreon link. All that funds go directly back into the show to keep producing it for you, our listeners. And we're glad that you're taking the time to listen. I'm always amazed when I look at the analytics and I see how many hours that we are wasting. I mean, consuming of people's time. (laughs) It's like, uh, it's unbelievable. We are certainly humbled by your support. Uh, if you want to follow us on Facebook, we're on facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed. We're on Twitter at scuba obsessed. Uh, and a, if you even want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Darren Jilson, D a R R I N J I L L S O N. And, uh, hopefully I get caught up on the editing of some episodes. Cause as we're recording this, I'm probably about five episodes behind on editing. Uh, so some of these may be, By the time you hear it, we may have done some out of order because I want to make sure we get all these shows that are supporting the uh, dive shows out so that people can hear them and plan on going if they so desire. So I think we are getting to that time of the show. Absolutely. I'm sitting down. I'm ready to roll. Okay. So this is a short one. But uh, we can blame somebody who's in the chat room. I won't mention any names that start with D. Uh, a mate of mine's dog died yesterday. I asked him if he wanted another one. He said, piss off, idiot. What would I want with another dead dog? <laughs>
too soon? Probably for somebody, <laughs> probably for somebody it is. <laughs> so until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. the building Craig leave Craig I get why I ignore him anymore since he's working yeah yeah that scares me as soon as we stop paying attention to him that's when I'll like completely fail <laughs>